There is no one standard definition of what is regenerative leadership. From a permaculture angle, we're looking at taking care of the people, taking care of the plant. Top-down uh, pedagogies didn't necessarily work for farmers. Hello and welcome to the Permaculture Vine podcast. Today's roundtable episode is on is on uh, regenerative leadership and permaculture. So today we have uh, three great guests. Uh, so we have Sarah, Amy, and Christopher. If you want to just introduce each other, or introduce yourselves there. Sarah, do you want to go first? Yeah, I'm Sarah Spencer. I'm founder of Think Like a Tree and Think Like a Forest and author of Think Like a Tree, The Natural Principles Guide to Life. Um, so I support individuals and businesses and organisations to transition towards regenerative. And I have a diploma in applied permaculture design. So that's kind of where my my love of learning from nature stemmed. And then it's kind of just rippled out from there. Hi, my name is Amy. I'm based in the south of Spain. I've been in the permaculture area of work for the last uh, 10 to 12 years. I come from previously from a career in finance and wealth management, so very different uh, to permaculture. And um, at the moment, I'm very heavily involved in the International Permaculture Collab, where I lead uh, quite a few circles and initiatives in a self-organized space. So I, it's a very lived-in, um, let's say, regenerative leadership there. So... I'm looking forward to talk more about that soon. Oh, hello. Uh, my name is Christopher Nesbitt. I am the uh, one of the founders of the Maya Mountain Research Farm located in San Pedro, Colombia, Toledo district uh, of Belize. Uh, and I run the farm with my wife, Seleni Logan Nesbitt. And our primary focus is on trees. So, and uh, yeah, that's about it. And I'm Cormac, your host. Uh, I'm a Northern Ireland permaculture designer and... Uh, yeah, permaculture student, I suppose. <laughs> uh, thanks, guys, for coming on. I uh, really appreciate it. Uh, I'm looking forward to hearing all the different perspectives. So I suppose where we start is what is regenerative leadership uh, and how does that tie in with permaculture? Sarah, do you want to have a go with that first? Yeah, so, I mean, there is no one standard definition of what is regenerative leadership, but regenerative in general is all about this idea of creating life and also aligning ourselves with living systems so the way that that life operates so um, for me that means uh, leadership being inspired by natural principles um, and uh, operating in a way which unleashes potential so instead of trying to problem solve we are trying to look for potential in situations, in people, in ecosystems, and try and um, operate such that that potential gets realized into actuality. And I think leadership also can be redefined in the sense that we are, we are all called in these current times to be leaders. Um, so it isn't about a hierarchy. It is about developing uh, an inner inner strengths as a leader as well as the outer abilities to uh, collaborate and work within teams and organizations and communities and ecosystems so it's it's very broad everybody can be should be must be a regenerative leader in my opinion um so you know it's a, it's a really uh 
it, it's something that welcomes everybody and values diversity as well of ideas, opinions, people, backgrounds, etc. So there's my first stab. <laughs> That's great. Amy, you want to try? Sure. Uh, well, first of all, regenerative is implying that something is being regenerated after after having been spent some of the energies, right? So in terms of regenerative leadership, um, with, from a permaculture angle, we're looking at taking care of the people, taking care of the planet. So it's not just about extracting as a leader, you know, you go and tell your team do this and do that. But actually in self-organized spaces, we all have to watch out that we don't get burned out. So we're watching out for each other. We're making sure responsibilities are spread out and that people are actually enjoying what they're doing and not being burned out by, by what they have to do. I think it's quite tricky in a way that it changes people. So if we see a lot of people who haven't been exposed to uh, regenerative spaces before not know exactly what to do because the, there is no one to tell you necessarily this is your job you know you have to kind of step up and that's the leadership part that you have to be in in a way your own leader and to step into empowerment so that you can lead with an idea with with an event or lead with yourself with your skills and the, the other aspect of it is to also be able to say to people oh you know, there's a lot on the plate right now. And how are we going to, to manage this between us? So, yeah, I think there's a lot to be said here about um, self-organized spaces because leadership is very much misunderstood. We we take leadership often to mean uh, hierarchical structures, but that's not necessarily the only way to take leadership. And so regenerative leadership, I think, really speaks to that. That's great. Christopher? Well, um so back in the 1990s and early 2000, uh, I worked for an English chocolate company called Green and Blacks, uh, working with Maya Cacao Farmers here in, in Toledo. And what we found was that top-down uh, pedagogies didn't necessarily work for farmers for transition translating information, uh, coming down, you know, like a teacher and putting wisdom on a chalkboard and scribe-like recording wisdom. And we found that lateral movement of information was actually much more uh, effective. And uh, the leadership, when I when I took over managing Toledo Cacao Growers Association, was sort of a core cadre of people, most of whom were exceptional farmers, um, who took it over because there was a vacuum there that needed to be addressed. Uh, so I think w one of the, the um, important concepts behind regenerative leadership uh, would be practitioners who are re regenerating land uh, and working on, on in beneficial ways that, that uh, serve the planet, serve themselves, uh, serve the community around them, um, and tend to involve lateral movements of information, not hierarchical, uh, uh, as uh, Amy mentioned, that, that uh, sort of lateral movement instead of top up structured top to bottom. That's great. Uh, so my experience of this has been quite, uh, I'm quite new to this. So, uh, for me, even working in the self organized spaces, Amy, you mentioned that was, I find it very difficult to make the transition. <laughs> so sometimes I'm not sure what they do because you're, you are waiting for that permission mm -hmm. and it's, 
how do we encourage people to how, how do we try and fix that mindset of going from hierarchical because we've been used to it and conditioned it all our lives to sort of try and step outside that a wee bit because I certainly struggle with it. It is certainly very challenging. So this is a common experience, what you mentioned, that people come into our um, self-organized spaces and they need more than just a verbal permission. They need an invitation. They need accompaniment. They need mentorship. And I think that's often lacking also in self-organized spaces because there's no one, you know, doing that specific job perhaps or taking responsibility for that. So that's uh, one of the dangers that you might have a self-organized space where a few people know what they're doing and they're just doing, but other people who want to get involved really need more support. I think uh, the best way that I have seen it done is by inviting, uh, by the people coming in, inviting them to share what, what their skills are and what they would like to, what they're interested in doing, and then in implanting those people into already functioning teams because then they learn by example and they become more and more empowered very quickly whereas if people just lurk around and just observe for a long time they tend to go cold and say oh I'm, I've been sitting on the fringes and not really participating and it's often the case that then they drop out a little bit after so follow through from from onboarding let's say to so implementation, that's a very critical point, which uh, often uh, falls between the cracks. Yes, and I, I would second that, Amy, um, as well. And, and having sort of specific roles that are around um, kind of mentoring roles, coaching roles, and separating that out from the um, the doing roles. So, you know, it's very hard to be a doer in a group and also trying to uh create the culture at the same time so to to have that assigned to people I mean it can re rotate definitely um you know can be helpful um and and I think you know we I, I co-founded a community woodland social enterprise 10 years ago and um although I stepped away from the board four years ago you know there were there were various things that that we did to try and invite people into that um role one of the one of them it was just it was to explicit explicitly say so even for events where people had paid um to to attend we would say please come as a um with the mindset of a participant rather than a consumer um you know or collaborator co-creator rather than a consumer because we're so drilled into that consumerist mindset of you know i've paid money uh, and you know my chair is going to be there waiting for me when I arrive my tea is going to be handed to me or there just you know to be a consumer um you know so sometimes having not having those things so I you know I sometimes with, with um if I run a workshop or something I deliberately don't put the chairs out and as people arrive you know they're invited to do that and and sort of you know all, automatically then become co-creators of that space and similarly with sharing refreshments and that kind of thing so some you know some things can be quite simple others are much more complex um yeah and, and Christopher you mentioned there the the sort of teaching the farmers the, the lateral spread of information how, how did that develop in and in, in, in the information sharing so uh, 
I took over Toledo Cacao Growers Association in 1997, um, in part because basically they were getting letters from Fair Trade and Organic uh, Soil Association asking for to respond, and nobody was understanding the language. The language was kind of technical, and so they just let it languish there, sitting there on the desk. And then uh, I was asked to come in by Craig Sams, who, who started the company Green and Blacks, uh, to help them with that. And uh, and then I, I was took over sort of managing it, not not as a director, but as sort of a facilitator to keep it moving. Um, and one of the things that we found um, when we had training, so we we, we built an, ext uh, uh, we established an extension program. And, and what we found was that classroom time was not necessarily very productive. Uh, we bring in uh, Dr. Ramirez from Cartier uh, in, in Costa Rica to come and teach sort of biodiversity management cacao. And, you know, that sort of top down pedagogy wasn't working for farmers. So what we would, and in addition, there'd always be this one guy in, in the crowd, usually it would be a, a male and uh, in his twenties or early thirties, who'd be sitting there like that, you know, and they say, and they'd be like, question and answer. Okay, um, Dr. Ramirez, how much cacao do you have? And he'd say, well, I don't actually have any cacao. Uh, but I did my PhD research on blah, blah, woof, woof, and nobody's listening. And everything that he said before that had validity just got devalued. Uh, and that we found that by working with farmers, uh, there was a couple of farmers. The first one was well, my neighbor down the river who died a few years ago, uh, late Mr. Saul Garcia, who has probably the most impressive agroforestry system I've ever seen. Uh, and I've been at like 600 farms. And in terms of biological diversity, we did a 25 by 25 meters and there were 75 plants species and they're useful to him, uh, of multiple cultivars of several of the species. And uh, what we found was that the, the information that Dr. Ramirez from Cate was trying to give the farmers, which wasn't getting much traction, uh, we could present that same information in Mr. Saul Garcia's farm because his farm was exceptional and it was a way that farmers would go there. And there's, there's this uh, condescension amongst people who, who don't work with farmers that, that, oh, because farmers can't read or write, they're not literate. Uh, and the fact of the matter is that they, they are highly literate. Their literacy tends to be botanic, it tends to be systems, it tends to be soils, it tends to be relationships between elements and systems. And uh, so we could take working on these literacies that, that um, the, the members of the Toledo Cacao Association had, we could present the same information that was being presented by uh, Dr. Ramirez from Katie at Mr. Saul's farm. And instead of the, the oh, there's the, this uh, upper class educated Costa Rican guy uh, who doesn't actually have any cacao telling us there's, oh, there's that guy that's always selling uh, stuff in the market uh, who comes in and uh, is, you know, unloading hundreds of pounds of cacao out at the cacao depot. Um, and so there was an instant validation of anything he said, uh, sort of uh, uh, because because people understood that this guy was actually doing it. And on top of that, he looked like them, you know, it's like Mr. Sowell, uh, you know, he, he's he he he's from from the area. I mean, he's, he, he was it's actually Mestizo, but he grew up in a Kekshi Maya community. So there's a story to it, but whatever. Yeah, it, it, that really un underlines one of the key principles of regenerative, which is that it has to arise from place. 
So, you know, we see across se several different regenerative disciplines. So permaculture, biomimicry, regenerative economics has this as well. It is that this place-based approach and, and um, you know, in, in, in business circles, it it's, can be quite problematic because people are looking for best practice and, you know, mm -hmm. tick box solutions and, and let's, uh, you know, have these criteria that you feel fulfill and then you get this certification. And regenerative doesn't work like that because, you know, as um, Christopher so eloquently explained, you know, it come it comes, it came there from the land, but it also came from the people. And then it also became came from the potential of the people who were the the farmers who were then evolving their practice. So, you know, the, this kind of evolving from place, realising potential according to a unique set of circumstances is something that we see everywhere in, in nature and is something we, we really do have to learn from for every business, whether it be a land-based business or, you know, a, a manufacturing business you know we that there are unique circumstances that need to be looked at before we can even start to think about what changes we might want to make i also find it uh, interesting what you said christopher about um uh, it the people being more receptive when it's someone else in their same shoes communicating that to them like leading so in our online spaces that's a little harder to to equivalent to, to have an equivalent for but actually leading by example is uh, very important when you're trying to set up an online community culture because people look at each other just to kind of measure what are the social values in the space right uh, and if the social values in the space are written one way but the behavior is another then you have a kind of erosion of those values and that's when it becomes degenerative rather than regenerative and people move away. So I think that's that's quite a critical point. And the other one is being of of place. So even if there is no physical place necessarily, the fact that people have a shared ethics for permaculture or they have a shared language and a shared culture that really helps for for this regenerative feel to to the interactions to to come about. It's also hard to fake it's not possible to fake this. So you really have to be living the culture and be talking the language. Otherwise, you know, it, it's not possible to replicate it on a, like a phony way. Yeah, and I, th I think embracing complexity, embracing the fact that, you, you know, this is a trial and error approach that you have to learn by doing. There isn't a such thing as perfection. You know, all of those things take courage to step into. And, and that's why I think having, you know, supportive regenerative spaces uh for everybody to to have that supportive network of people to ask curious questions really because a lot of how we get to what we decide you know what decisions we make come uh, are made much richer by asking ourselves questions and asking questions of each other so so having those supportive uh non-judgmental spaces where people can explore um, issues that are rising out of their unique circumstances. I think that's the way that we, you know, get the most out of this this potential and this quite uh, seemingly uncomfortable space that 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 regenerative leaders have to step into, really. And it's a big ask 
to ask people who are that's not they're you know they're not in that space yet to ask people to be courageous to step out of their comfort zone to put themselves forward this is quite a big ask in energy and and commitment also if they're taking ownership of some task so yeah I, I really resonate with what you said there Sarah I think there also needs to be some appreciation and gratitude that this doesn't come naturally to to all of us know that some of us have to work harder than others to to be able to do that yes and and that we are really um stepping outside of the current paradigm which says that as leaders we should always be in control that if somehow you know things don't go to plan it's us who's doing it wrong you know it's a totally different pa paradigm of this mechanistic control hierarchical mindset versus the nature inspired um regenerative systems approach that is the reality of our world and really we're just stepping into reality but we are actually leaving behind you know 500 years of mechanistic drumming into us that that somehow you know that's the way to do it uh, so that definitely, you know, that definitely needs some extra, some courage, some support. And I think that, you know, the, the permaculture principle of, of edge effect is, is a really key one here because, you know, the, there's definitely something around com comfort zones with edge. So you've got the, you know, the edge between two ecosystems is the most productive, the most creative. Um, and we, you know, we see that in, in leaders as well so when people do have that courage to step outside of their comfort zones to try something new to try and think differently to be differently um then you know that's when the magic ha starts to happen really so you know remember that permaculture edge effect um principle because you can observe it anywhere just go for a walk in the woods and you'll see it and then you can just start bringing it into your business practices at, at vine we've had uh, maybe five founders at this stage come and go. <laughs> so at the start, we just said it was like basically right. Who's the CEO? It was the de facto. Who's the COO? So very, we went straight to the corporate thing, and then instead of chief technology officer, it was chief permaculture officer. We were just getting started. <laughs> so that's now when you think about it, but that's that's what we. I just took a model. This is right. We we'll just go with that. So then relationships get strained because roles. We were sort of going for a whoever owns it makes the decision in terms mm -hmm. of, right, you do this, so you just make all the decisions. And if, if anyone has a problem with it, just flag it. <laughs> and yeah. then it's now it's like, right, how do how do we make this properly regenerative? And, and how do we adopt the, how do we learn basically about those principles and then how do we apply them? How do we get from a place of, of that rigidity to that sort of look on the nature? So one of the things that I bought um, when I was 22, I bought a, a very degraded citrus and cattle farm because it was super, super cheap. Uh, it didn't have a road. It didn't really have a house. It didn't have electricity. It didn't have water. Uh, we have all of that minus the road. We still come in and out by uh, dugout canoe. Um, so I, I basically had to... Uh, come up with ways to repair the land. I bought this degraded land, but I was young and very stupid and I, I had no idea it was degraded land. You know, it had citrus on it. There were oranges on the trees. And I didn't notice the sort of dead branches out at the end, which are signs of dieback 
I didn't question that that it was 27 years old when uh, citrus has sort of uh, starts to be less productive after about year 25. And I ended up with this like dying citrus farm. I got rid of the cattle within the first six months because I could see that they were no good. And then I then we had I had to take a long time of observation and uh and that's where we came up with the philosophy of, of what would now be called the multi-strata agroforestry system, um, with an emphasis on tropical staple trees for the the amount of food that they produce. At that time, there were very few people talking about agroforestry and. Uh, in the communities that I live in, uh, and uh, the main people doing agroforestry were doing either uh, cacao-dominant agroforestry or, to a much lesser extent, coffee. Uh, so there's sort of a multi-strata agroforestry system with a heavy focus on the, the subcanopy layer. And so I think that a lot of regenerative uh, practices are born out of necessity. Uh, people are presented with hey, I'm degrading my land, or I've inherited this degrading land, or I bought degraded land because I'm young and I can't afford to buy any good land. Um, and so a lot of people getting into uh, regenerative agriculture are getting into it because they're confronted with these, these realities that, that were established before they got into agriculture. Uh, and, and so I think that necessity, certainly in our case, has been uh, the mother of invention and is the, the way that we came up with the sort of practices that we have to repair degraded land. Can you apply and, them? And, <laughs> Can you apply them to a degraded company? <laughs> well, well, I mean, starting with yeah. the observation is definitely uh, the way to go. Uh, I mean, that you know, they they say that with all permaculture, mm. we're in our think like forest, you know, regenerative organization fundamentals program. That's the first thing we get everybody to do. Just observe your organization without judgment and without trying to fix anything without, you know, because we what we tend to do as human beings, we look at something and go, oh, oh, but I could do that instead or, oh, I shouldn't be doing that. And we, we're just judging. Whereas if we take that permaculture designer approach and just, you know, imagine you're doing a site survey of your company and literally just mapping what is there. And I'm not, I don't mean, you know, the physical bits. I mean, kind of, well, we have this team meeting here and, you know, such and such and such and such talk, get together in the pub on a, you know, a Thursday and chat about the business. You know, that's your site survey, if you like. And you can get a really good non-judgmental non picture of your business to, to start with, just to see, you know, what, you know, what, how things are. Um, and then having that strong sense of purpose, which, you know, I, I guess you already have, but just to be in, to ensure that everybody involved has got the same purpose. And what we tend to do as well is have um, individual purpose statements and shared purpose statements. So for example, myself and JK McQuinn, so I'm Think Like a Tree and she's where the mind grows and we've come together to form Think Like a Forest, which is our um, business for supporting businesses and organizations so we essentially did a design process which was kind of here's my you know vision here's her vision where do they overlap and so we've got a, a really strong shared vision but which honors our individual businesses and um and downtime as well 
So, you know, we've got very different family situations. You know, I've got land and, you know, she's got other commitments and we honor all of that. But because we've been really open right from the start about what our shared vision is for this um, particular project, this particular business. So, you know, starting with observation, then moving on to that visioning process can really help and sometimes when organizations do this they realize that there are people in their organization that just are never going to be aligned with their vision and that's okay you know sometimes that happens um and you know so but but when there is a, a strong vision that people unite behind then all the rest sort of starts to you know then you obviously start to develop you know collaboration culture working practices but things tend to more naturally fall into place once you're you know you're united around that that common vision there's a, a really good resource i i think you can find it online it's a book called working with source i'll have to find out who wrote it now because i don't remember but it's a very good resource for for people who have um or working with teams and have basically to find out what this division is and who is holding this vision and how is this being shared. There's some also interesting tools now that are coming from the business world, but they're applicable also to permaculture designs. I mean, we have this like PMI, which is uh, some tools that are used in permaculture design. And uh, I think the ones that are interesting in this context are the Team Onion, which you can also find online. And the team onion allows people to self-assess how close or how far they are from the core team. So, you know, they can map, you can map the team on it by allowing everyone to basically put themselves how close uh, or how far away they are from the middle. And the other tool is a team canvas. And the team canvas allows the team to basically also self-assess and say, okay, I have so much capacity. I have these skills. I have these interests. This is what I see myself doing in this context. And then everyone can share their individual canvases to have a shared canvas that the whole team can really buy into. And I think this buying into process and because no one is no one is like the leader, everyone is taking their leadership into doing this exercise by self-assessing, uh, declaring their variables that could be capacity, family situations, other obligations and so on. It really helps it really helps create that regenerative place because there is no then misunderstanding so you know that um let's say Cormac has uh, young children and therefore he cannot wait uh, he cannot work uh, I don't know when he has childcare duties or that Amy runs a farm and there when I have harvest I'm not available to be reached so by having all these knowns you know you get rid of all these unknowns which are really then could be eroding or creating misunderstandings and so on the team I think it, there's also another one that's coming to my mind now is something called the happy team protocol, which is also an interesting tool where people um, go over what are their expectations and, and so on. And in terms of sharing compensation, which is also a very good tool, is a happy money story. And this is where people get to talk about expectations around money. How is their money situation? Because we don't like to talk about it. We don't like to talk about money. We are often in self-organized spaces, not salary-based. 
you know, we we are often freelancing or maybe sharing of a, a funding budget or, you know, with something more abstract than someone getting a salary. And so uh, conversations around money and our expectations of money and our lived experience of money becomes quite important then. Gosh, that's a lot. <laughs> <laughs> yes, one, one that came to mind as well was the, uh, the the forms of capital, which is sometimes expressed as eight forms of capital, sometimes as nine, depending on how you how it how it falls out. Um, but but that's a really good one for for evaluating a business and organ or organisation sort of in ways other than money. In you know, in terms of you know what resources are available. Mm -hmm. um and it's that's really really useful for community businesses as well because we discover i mean i do it with individuals as well um but we discover that we we we're, we're a lot wealthier usually we're starting from a usually we start from a point of view of what i don't have you know so it's that scarcity mindset that's always kind of driving um but when we do the eight or nine forms of capital then you know it, it starts to shift into that sort of abundance mindset of, of seeing things in terms of what I do have and using that as a starting point and then trying to create wealth in a diversity of different ways other than purely money um and you know and 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 I think that is you know what what Amy mentioned about you know kind of having conversations about around money that is really really important because people have vastly different um needs in in terms of money often um in community spaces um especially and you know we need we need to be open i mean transparency is is something overall that i think we we see um being valuable in regenerative spaces you know just having transparency with regard to everything from money to information to knowledge to skills you know <clears throat> being transparent is really important well, that's well, actually an important distinction to make sorry to interrupt no, that's right. um, the uh uh the concept of wealth and uh, uh i am i am an exceptionally wealthy person in every way except for cash my, my bank account is not good i have a, i have a difficult relationship with money really good at spending it not very good at making it um and i think part of this because i'm spread all over the place with what we do here so there's only a few things we actually market um uh but in other ways uh i have a very good high quality of life i live well i eat well uh, i enjoy what i do uh, when I when my, when Selene and I worked with uh, just a couple of weeks ago, we were up in the north of the country working with women, teaching them how to grow vanilla, uh, which is uh, sort of a lost art in Belize. And Belize is part of where vanilla originated from. And there's very few vanilla farmers here. Uh, and so we got paid for that. We didn't get paid a lot, but I mean, it was nice. And uh, so I think that the understanding of wealth and, and the different forms of wealth is very important, uh, which is. Uh, when when Sarah was talking about the multiple forms that wealth comes in, I think that uh, an acknowledgement uh, to yourself of that you are uh, that you have a wealth, some form of wealth that you may not may not be cash, uh, but that you are still fortunate and you're still good is a really good way uh, to move forward on anything because it, then then you're not coming from this 
uh, feeling of man, I've just I, it's not working out for me because look at my bank account. I got six dollars and I owe fifty or whatever. Um, you know, so um, just when you touched on that, it triggered something in me uh, because I, I think that the fact of the matter is that the more we organize around spaces where uh, people's wealth is acknowledged or uh, is used to people's advantages, um, the the better off we are. Uh, what I was going to say there in terms of transparency is uh, for my diploma, I'll be implementing this in my business. So you should give me some great <laughs> great structure here that I, c- I can use and some great examples. Uh, have you any used things you want to ask each other about it or, or make uh, have we not covered anything? Because we we've had the example. I'm I'm curious from Christopher. I I know nothing about Belize. Um, I'm I'm curious whether there are uh sort of, it, it is there an indigenous perspective on this that you've come across in terms of you know it, when when I've in my limited um research around north american indigenous perspectives there are things like reciprocity that come up you know relationship you know the these sort of um values i guess that we see in certain you know in indigenous um people it, have you come across that sort of in your location more about social mores than anything codified the way people treat each other and talk to one another uh uh they, they are it's done differently here Con- confrontations at least in maya communities are usually established uh often over talking and where the people don't look at each other and so I, I i got into a conflict with some student and he's like dude you won't even look at me and it's like oh and i told him i said i think that's because i've i've learned not to look away respectfully and talk my position and listen to the other person without acknowledging without looking at them not being confrontational uh, so there, there's certain mores uh, uh, in terms of regenerative agriculture. There's lots of practices. Um, a lot of those are disappearing now. Um, when I worked at Cacao Growers, the conception amongst the board of directors at Toledo Cacao Growers was that anybody that used herbicides was either stupid or lazy or both. Uh, and then uh, last year we were working with uh, maize and beans farmers up on in some border communities uh, doing survey work. Um, and we found that basically every single farmer now is using herbicides. That's that's the norm. It's become the norm. Um, so I th- I think I got slightly off the topic to the answer, uh, but I think that a lot of a lot of uh, a lot of the indigenous world here in, in Belize, with the 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 Kekchi and the Mopan Maya in Toledo district, and then the Yucatec Maya in northern Belize, uh, and then of course the Garifuna people on the coast. A lot of a lot of their cultural um, a lot of the culture is being changed and homogenized through a combination of uh, American TV, the internet, uh, youth culture, sort of homogenization, uh, and then the insidious introduction of, uh, in agriculture at least, the insidious in- introduction of agrotechnologies that that uh, basically mine out and and sap underneath uh, millennia of accumulated indigenous knowledge in agriculture, and and we see that a lot. I mean, that's that's ongoing um uh so i uh i'm way off the quite the original question um uh but to say yes there there were there are ind- uh indigenous practices that are regenerative and there but most of it is social mores how people treat one another 
um, how people talk to one another, deference for age, uh, which I, I always liked. And the, the, you can never win an argument with a farmer once they tried out grandpa because, oh, well, I do it this way because grandpa did it that way. Well, you can't argue with grandpa. Uh, you know, so, uh, yeah. Okay. Sorry, I kind of went off. Uh, no, that, that, it's, su it's super interesting because what because I do find fascinating, you know, that, um, you know, in in regenerative um circles and books and that I've come across, you know, that the people are referencing a lot more, quite rightly, that indigenous perspective. Um, I'm I'm kind of thinking of um, uh, Car Carol Samford here. So she's got um a, the regenerative mm. business. So her grandfather was um. Native America I've forgotten which um people he was from but you know she she references some of his wisdom in in her books which were very which are very corporate you know she's she's very firmly rooted in in the corporate world um and uh yeah I I I like that sort of um that feeling that that we're not just learning from nature, we're learning from people who also learnt from nature and didn't necessarily lose it along the way as we did in the Western world. So, it's yeah. one thing that's come up in permaculture. I, I, I have a, a, somebody I, I know remotely, I've never met them. Uh, we have many mutual friends. He, he's a, a Native American and he boldly declared that uh, uh, permaculture is just stealing indigenous knowledge and I was like, not exactly. And I, I explained that um, often if you rigorously apply permaculture principles to a landscape, you'll come up with something parallel to what indigenous people uh, do or have done, uh, where it's not necessarily plagiarism, but it's uh, approaching it through the, the framework of permaculture principles and arriving at a similar place. Um, and it's a it's a it's a touchy thing because he he was not ready to honestly hear that um and uh uh and so i i mean i didn't push it i just explained my personal observation uh uh that you know if you apply permacultural principles to a landscape you're going to come up with probably best design uh and it may be, have been uh similar to design work uh done uh, over millennia by cultures who lived in that same space that, that you're working in. The permaculture movement has done really great work recently at recognizing the roots of in indigenous teachings and in permaculture, which I think is quite good work, but we still have a way to go to, de let's say, decolonize permaculture and, yes. and on technology's roots. I uh, that's, I think, also a part of regenerative, lead regenerative leadership and the in the movement itself and how are we conducting ourselves as permaculture teachers and designers when we are communicating about permaculture that we acknowledge where where the where this knowledge comes from and that we want to celebrate these cultures and uh, to promote them not only not to appropriate any any yeah. of the knowledge it's an another thing in terms of regenerative leadership is there there's I'm 57 years old. I've been doing this uh, next month. It will be complete 35 years ago that I started farming. And um, I, I was confronted with, I had to swim across the river in a flood to get a canoe. It's a whole story. Um, stuff that I could have done easily 
in my 20s and uh, uh, I was halfway across the river um, and I realized that I'm not in my 20s anymore. I'm like, this would be a really stupid way to drown, you know? And uh, so um, one, one of the things that the older heads in, in the room, which is probably me, <laughs> uh, is we need to start thinking about how do we seed, seed space uh, in what we're doing to make room for younger people who who can continue this when we are unable to or uh, or unwilling to. I mean, I, I have a stack of books I'd like to read. Um, and uh, I'm never going to get around to it until I until I like make time for that. And one of the ways to do that is to start to seed that. So my wife and I have in the last uh, few years have started uh, putting former students in positions of teaching parts of our permaculture design courses. We had a former student when we were teaching the the women up in in uh, in the north of the country how to grow vanilla. We asked her to come with us. She's an indigenous woman from the village we live in. Um, she, she's my compadre's niece. Um, and so, uh, and that's, that felt really good because I, I, I can't do this forever. Like I said, I'm 57. Uh, I'm coming up with body limitations fairly, uh, more than I'd like, like I fall down and I don't bounce back up the way I did. You know, it's like, ah, oh, I cracked a rib. That's going to suck for the next six weeks, you know, uh, so yeah, I mean that's an, another way of, of making space for people is is to understand that we're not going to be here forever and and make room for younger generations to step up and do work. I think that's really important, and that designing from for succession, you know, in say community groups can be in there right from the start. Um, so the you know I mentioned the community woodland social enterprise that I co-founded 10 years ago you know it was always the plan that I would you know be a co-founder permaculture designer but that I would step away and leave you know space for for new people coming along unfortunately it hasn't quite happened in the in the way that that I'd hoped and I left a bit more prematurely than I wanted to before that that endeavor was um, done to my satisfaction so they are definitely having some issues around it being you know older people um, and you know you but you've got to be really active in that process you know like like you're you are being Christopher you know you can't just expect a group of older people in a community space to be naturally welcoming to young people who come along with new ideas and new energies it's got that's got to be sort of designed in um and and we can be very deeply inspired by the living systems that we always are in permaculture you know that 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 succession is a natural process that that you know the the great oak has to fall down in the forest to give light to the you know the new sapling that's waiting to it to emerge and we we need to be really you know designing that in um very very actively and that takes also a lot of energy and a lot of thought and people to be on board with the idea because what you don't want to happen is you go out and do a whole campaign to i don't know recruit under 20s then they come in and the space is not friendly or it's not prepared for them mm. uh, people aren't really helping <laughs> And that's quite interesting because what I see in the permaculture movement is there's quite a division between the youth and permaculture part and the like the more adult or the older 
movement and I think we need more better transition and friendlier spaces that regenerative leaders today can absolutely prepare and design to make that uh, succession happen, let's say, more f fluidly. Mm. But I think so. The landscape you see behind me, uh, that was citrus. Uh, and I think I took that photo like 10 or 12 years ago. Uh, and it was citrus. And we basically managed succession um, to go with. We had certain species that we were pioneer species that fixed nitrogen or built soil or loosened soil or uh, and provided yield. And eventually we came up with that. And that's what we were aiming for. And uh, once you establish the process and the species selection, it's actually really, really easy. It's not overly complicated. People, on the other hand, are extremely complicated. Uh, and it, it's one of the things that I, I say, like, uh, uh, what do you not like about permaculture? And I'm like, well, you know, people. <laughs> because, uh, uh, because we might not all be on the same page today or we're all on the same page tomorrow or that, uh, you know, there, there's a misunderstanding or somebody, you know, their agenda changed or uh, whatever. Uh, I Like plants and animals are much easier to deal with, than, uh, even when they're difficult, uh, because you kind of know how that's going to go. But people are so dynamic, uh, and and uh, and through their own personal growth, uh, they change or through or they regress or whatever. Uh, so I, I I I that that's the 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 problem I, that I face uh, in terms of uh, when we have people here helping us on the farm. We don't have any students anymore. We closed for like three years which has been both a relief because then I, I you know, um, just more us time, which is nice. But my compadre comes, uh, you know, three, four times a week, uh, sometimes more. Um, and uh, and so we, we work together. Uh, but every now and then my compadre will, will kill a tree. He killed a tree the other day. Uh, and it was, it's truthfully, it's a tree that doesn't have any real, doesn't produce anything. The wood isn't anything, but it had a place that I liked. And uh, and uh, and I remember thinking I talked about it with my wife. I said, "Well, you know," she said, "Well, you're upset about it because um, it was it was a, a a plant whose Latin name I've forgotten, but it's called horses balls, and it was growing on top of a boulder and through the roots around it. I just admired its tenacity." Um, and uh, and my wife said, uh, "If you're unhappy about it, you should probably tell your compadre." But think about what the return on that's going to be, you know, um, uh, are you going to hurt his feelings? Um, and, uh, and I said, you know, and then once I heard that, I was like, you know, tree just wasn't that important uh, and uh, enough. Uh, so anyway, I, I, I guess for a lot of adventures, like particularly what we do, um, you get so invested in what you're doing that it's really hard to, to seed control uh, of it. And uh, it's one of the challenges that we we've had in the past when we've had people working with us is to try to give people control of certain aspects uh, without uh, micromanaging them or uh, backseat driving or whatever the word term you want to use. So um, one of those, those are some of the limitations that we see in, in sort of managing personal succession. Yeah. All what I was thinking was the the difference between kind of doing and being, um, it, you know, because permaculturists are usually doers. I mean, I'm a, a huge doer, and I started at you know we bought a small holding twenty years ago, and you know kind of done all the permaculture, the tree planting, the 
community woodland everything you know I'm a doer but it was actually through a realization around the people side in both in myself through a chronic illness and through relationships with you know in in the community that that I realized that actually this is where I needed to put my energy because that was that's that's the hard bit like you like you were saying Christopher and that and that's why I kind of dedicated the last few years to researching these type of tools and resources um to you know and and ways of being in the world that can run alongside doing that uh, are what is going to make it work um so it's you know it's that combination of being and doing that we have to you know that takes effort really sorry amy what were you we were going to say something it's okay the christopher story reminded me of once when i got very upset with a volunteer because they threw away something i was fermenting and they just thought it was going off <laughs> and it reminded me reminded me of the because i completely lost my temper i was so angry and then because of this I, I memory let's say i also had to apologize later when i cooled down and everything and they were completely fine with it except they thought maybe it was a bit crazy <laughs> but there's some interesting tools that we use in the collab that might you might find interesting one is the trauma-informed collaboration which is basically an, an effort to understand why people behave sometimes in the way that they do so they, there might be some past trauma. So let's say when I lost my temper, right? That was a trauma response. The vo it wasn't because the volunteer uh, that I cared so much about this one jar, but it, it triggered something in me, maybe loss of control or whatever. So uh, trauma-informed collaboration helps us to be more compassionate towards the people that we collaborate with because we may not know everything that they have been through. And the second one is a conflict transformation technique. So this is where we uh, shine a spotlight on not only what, what is this conflict about, but what we are bringing into the conflict. So our own biases, our, our own belief system. Um, and even when we say to someone, go in the garden and do what you want, you know, start a herb garden and you give them some seeds and they off they go. And then you're upset because it's round instead of square or it's in a grid or they broke uh, your favorite watering can. So this this sort of, you know, what it it asks us to look at one's ourselves as what are we bringing into this conflict? What's our energy like? How much capacity do we have to dealing with this emotionally right now? And so on. So these are very, I think, valuable tools, not only for managing volunteers, but in our families and our personal lives, but most importantly, in community projects and self-organized spaces where there is no boss to say, you and you shake hands, off you go. <laughs> you know, you have to make that effort. You have to really bring yourself back to the table you've walked away from so that you can continue the work. And that's very difficult sometimes. Yeah, it, it's definitely harder when it's volunteers. Um, uh, one one tool that uh, I absolutely love is compassionate communication or nonviolent communication. Uh, Marshall Rosenberg's techniques around um, communication, but also understanding the needs um, that are 
the needs and the feelings that are lying behind behaviors because we've all got universal needs that come to the fore at different times but those needs can be expressed in very different ways so for example you know in a group situation somebody might be expressing a need to be heard um but that might come out in one person as anger and shouting you know listen to me why aren't you listening to me and on the other hand it might be somebody withdrawing and sitting in the corner or walking out of the room and the need is absolutely the same but the feeling behind it and the behavior are very different so if we Mm -hmm. can actually identify what need is either being met or not met in a particular situation either in ourselves or in other people then we can respond to that in a much more appropriate way because it's easy when somebody's shouting to then just shout back and you end up you know with a, with this conflict whereas if you can um you know ha- have some language to say you know uh, I, I can see that you're feeling upset, you know, is it perhaps because you're feeling the need to be heard can really diffuse the situation and give them a voice to then express, well, no, actually it was because I did blah, blah, blah. And and then suddenly you've totally transformed the energy um, because people are being listened to at that really fundamental level that we all have to have our basic needs met um so yeah so it's it's a tool that is absolutely brilliant and transformatory really for any family or group situation and you remind me of another tool as well which is basically the meeting check-in yeah this is like invaluable tool because you automatically know at the start of the meeting if someone's in a foul mood if they need to eat if they need to drink if they're too hot or too busy or too tired to be here and that really avoids a lot of problems later, I think. So, and that doesn't yeah. take much time, right? No, that's yeah. right. And it's and it's surprising how many meetings that you go to, say community meetings, or um, you know, and there may be not even that many people there where there is no acknowledgement of everybody in the room. You know, so even if it's a one word go round. So if you, you know, if you had 50 people in a room, obviously, you know, you can't take the whole meeting up with a go with a go round and check in. But just to acknowledge, you know, people's names or that that is huge in, uh, you know, people feeling welcome in a space, because what we all do quite naturally is make up stories. And when we go into a new space, many people will have already written the story that they believe is going to happen in that space. So they, you know, it's, they're nervous when they go in for the first time and they're thinking, okay, so that, you know, and, and this is subconscious often it's, you know, sometimes it's conscious, but often it is subconscious to do with things that might've happened in our past. So, you know, oh, well, I'll, I'll go into that meeting. And if I'm not acknowledged, it's because, um, you know that nobody's interested in what I'm saying and then and then it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy because people are you know they're not welcomed and then they don't come back and then we wonder why but Mm. like you say Amy having you know having that acknowledgement of people and the uh, what a check-in does is says are you okay that goes beyond just you're here it's I care enough to ask you if you're okay and how you are you know that 
that can be that's huge and and really often missed <laughs> it, you know <laughs> it, it, in permaculture it's pretty you know often pretty good I think but in other you know community spaces I, I I'm always quite despairing that 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 doesn't happen yeah I think here too is a for us I mean, for me it's a cultural thing when you go well, how's it going and somebody goes, oh, not good. You go, oh, no, I didn't ask. <laughs> oh, no, I shouldn't have asked. <laughs> but you also get the other way around, you know. You get the people who say they're fine, but they're not fine. And then you mm. notice in the meeting something's not right. And then you wonder again, you know, sometimes we interrupt meetings because of this. We say, you're a little bit withdrawn. Like, is everything okay here? Shall we have a pause or do we do a grounding? That's another tool when you, when you can do a short pause where people can center their attention to what they're doing. But I remember being in a, in a small guild, which is like three people working in a small group on a project. And we started with one hour meetings, but the I remember the check-ins were getting longer and longer. I'm thinking, oh my God, I can't do this. Like I can't do a one-hour meeting and half of it is check-in, right? But uh, it wasn't possible for this. There was one person who was taking up a lot of time and it wasn't possible for this person to start doing the work without doing the check-in. And that was obviously there was a bigger need than could be fulfilled in that group because the group was meeting for a specific uh, purpose and the check-in was completely on, the, on a very deep and personal and problematic level. So that was a really big challenge. We made the meeting, I think, 90 minutes instead of one hour, and that still wasn't doing it. And at one point we had, had to say, okay, we need to either put a time limit or we need to have additional support meetings outside of this one that are more on a mutual support basis. And from that, we we had created a monthly meeting, which was basically simply for check-in. That's all you, we did. And people could come and talk about how they're feeling, what they're experiencing also in some workspaces or on a personal level, and we would just be a mutual aid group. So there's there are ways to be dealing with this, but yes, it's it's an interesting challenge when you have to do work, and but you also want to do the personal, and you want to be human because we work with each other as humans, right? So we have to acknowledge that we have human problems, but at the same time we need to do the work. So there's the striking the balance and thinking a bit outside of the box how to how to achieve this. Yes, one one of the things that we do is um, when we've got a slightly bigger group is do a check in in a form of a, an analogy. So it might be kind of if you it, we one of them we call the weather report. So, you know, uh, check in. How are you feeling today and, and describe it as the type of weather that you are. And the interesting thing about that, so if you say, how are you? Like Amy said, people will go, oh, I'm fine, you know, because that is you know that we've that's learned behavior isn't it from you know conditioning of you somebody asks you how you are you just say yes I'm fine whereas if you say what weather are you you end up with like amazingly sort of creative um interesting things that actually are really insightful because you know if somebody says oh I feel like you know a tree where you know the wind's blown it over 
you know, you can really get the energy of how that person is is feeling. Um, so, you know, there, there are creative ways about getting, you know, getting getting that out there um, without, you know, without it necessarily. Um, it, it's, it's a balance, isn't it? Because if you've got a smaller group, then you want to go deeper, probably. And then a bigger group, you've got to manage the time, um, you know, while, while still acknowledging everybody. So do you feel fully resourced now, Cormac? Yeah, uh, as always, it always takes a direction I never thought. <laughs> uh, it was great. See, you, you had some books this year. Do you want to just quickly go through them? Because Christopher hasn't got enough books on his list. Oh, yeah. So um, I've just got a few. Uh, so the one I've just read is The Regenerative Enterprise. And in fact, I've just done a book review on uh, the Think Like a Tree blog of that one. That is really good. It's really good, like, basic introduction i mean there's a huge amount in it it's not there's nothing basic about it but it's actually really easy to read um the the two by well there's regenerative leadership by giles hutchins and laura storm that's absolutely brilliant and then leading by nature which is by giles hutchins as well anything by carol samford she's got a really good podcast as well called the business second opinion um all about regenerative business um and and uh, and of course i mean it's not expi- explicitly leadership but this huge amount of value for leaders which is of course daniel christian Viles um designing regenerative cultures which is an absolutely you know handbook for everything regenerative really and he's he always says start with questions so you know if you if you if you want to know where to start, just start with thinking about what questions you need to ask as well. Now, um, with Think Like a Forest, we do have a weekly regenerative business free um, email newsletter. And so I do share a lot of books, podcasts, activities, insights, nature stuff on that weekly. So you can find that through the Think Like a Tree website um and sign up for that so yeah i'm a bit of a a a squirrel when it comes to reading regenerative books (laughs) i like sharing them with people as well and on linkedin as well i usually share book reviews and things like that i just wanted to interject uh daniel daniel christian wall is a friend of mine i met him at the commonwealth um and uh and we clicked right away we went to some meeting that was about regenerative uh, it was about finance for for regenerative and and carbon drawdown projects and the we both one of the people talking was talking about uh return on investment and opportunities and he and i were looking at each other like mm, really you know like because uh we were thinking like how do we make we're facing a planetary crisis and uh, we have a limited amount of time to deal with it. And they were talking about uh, it's it's a recurring ha- thing that I, I encounter in those spaces uh, where they're talking about climate change and funding for climate change projects is what's the return on the project? It's like, well, your grandkids have a, a planet that's habitable. But anyway, I saw you mention uh, 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 Daniel Christian Wall's book, uh, which I absolutely love. Uh, it's a, a fantastic book. One of the most important books I've read in the in the last few years. Um yeah. and also I, I think very high of him as a person as well. Absolutely. So. And 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 he he you know he speaks with such integrity and, and he's he's really 
you know, happy to get into the weeds of what it really means to be regenerative and keeps keeps people on track, I think, really, really well mm-hmm. in a, you know, in a compassionate way. Um, so, yeah, a, re- a really, really good starting point there. Um, yeah. Yeah, it's been great. Thanks very much. Do you just want to go a quick round robin just where people can find you? Do you want to go first, Christopher? Okay, well, um, our webpage uh, crashed at some point during the pandemic and uh, we haven't rebuilt it. <laughs> so, uh, but I, I can be found at uh, uh, Christopher.Nesbit, N-E-S-B-I-T-T, at M-M-R-F-B-Z.O-R-G, which is my email address. Um, uh, alternately, we, we maintain a, a Facebook page. Uh, uh, some students bullied me into making a, a Facebook page for the farm, and, uh, and people can reach me there. I have a LinkedIn account, but I, I very seldom use it. Um, and I will eventually rebuild our web page. Um, uh, and I have a WhatsApp, so you know, I'm 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 hip and in the know, man. You can call me. Emily, <laughs> do you want to go next? There, sure. Um, people can find me on LinkedIn with my name, Amy Fennec, uh, and they can find the International Permaculture Collab on their website, perma.earth. And if you are curious, then you can get in touch and we can talk more about it. Sarah? So, yes, yeah, so it's thinklikeatree.co.uk um, and... Uh, I'm on LinkedIn, very happy to connect with anybody. Uh, and uh, I'm on also on Instagram and Facebook and, and whatever. Um, so yeah, really, really happy to connect with everybody. And and we have got a load of free stuff on there for, you know, workbooks and quizzes, regenerative business quizzes and, you know, emails and all sorts of things. So check out the website for all that free content as well. That's great. And for the audience, thanks very much for listening. That's been the Permaculture Vine, and I'll catch you all next week. Cheers. <laughs>